Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, November 27th. We'll talk now about President Biden's ongoing role in the new Mideast situation and the domestic politics in this country around that, and also some other Monday morning national politics. This could even be the week that George Santos is expelled from Congress and the scramble to replace him in a special election officially begins in Queens and Nassau County. And with such a slim majority for the Republicans in Congress at the moment, that seat might matter a lot to what gets passed in 2024. With us now, Molly Ball, senior political correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and author of the recent biography of that other Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, the book simply called Pelosi. Molly, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Here's a clip of Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut on CNN State of the Union yesterday suggesting that the billions of dollars of new aid money for Israel that President Biden wants should perhaps have strings attached based on how the Israeli government prosecutes the war. Listen. We um, regularly condition our aid to allies um, based upon compliance with U.S. law and international law. And so I think it's very consistent with the ways in which we have dispensed aid, especially during wartime, uh, to allies um, for us to talk about making sure that the aid we give Ukraine or the aid we give Israel is used in accordance with human rights laws. And that'll be a conversation we'll all be engaged in when we get back to Washington on Monday. Senator Chris Murphy yesterday on CNN. Well, now it is Monday and they are getting back. Molly, do you see a faction of Democrats who might tie that aid package to Biden pushing Israel more publicly on anything, maybe how they're waging the war against Hamas in terms of civilian casualties or the Jewish settler violence in the West Bank, which is a big thing or anything else? Uh, yes, I mean we've we've heard this now from from several uh, Democrats and and liberals in the Senate. Uh, Bernie Sanders also saying that uh, the U.S. should not be giving Israel a blank check. And as you say, this is now all about to to hit Congress as they come back this week, and it's going to be a very contentious. Uh, Uh, debate over this entire aid package, which has ballooned to include not only uh, aid to Israel, uh, but also the aid to Ukraine, which the administration wants to package together with the Israel aid to secure its passage. And Republicans now are saying that they want some kind of solution for the border to be included, immigration, uh, a notably contentious issue that Congress has been trying and failing to solve for decades. So adding that to the mix doesn't necessarily help. Uh, but this is all what uh, the Senate is going to be tackling as they come back to Washington this week. Uh, as the House comes back to to Washington this week, they managed to push the funding government, the government funding deadlines out to January and February. But they still have uh, this very important and very contentious foreign aid package to negotiate. So uh, the uh, the pressure from the left to put conditions on aid to Israel is going to be one component of it. But of course, we also have substantial Republican disagreement about Ukraine and substantial uh, agreement, uh, disagreement across the across the spectrum on how to deal with immigration. So it's going to be quite a fight. Were you surprised to hear Chris Murphy say what he said or the way he say it on said it on CNN yesterday? I mean, He's not a member of the squad, 
He's not Bernie Sanders. Uh, we've had many members of Congress on this show since October 7th, Democrats who tend to not want to say anything publicly against Israel, as President Biden has not wanted to. And, and I thought maybe that Chris Murphy moment, being relatively mainstream and very foreign policy involved as he is, um, signaled a new phase beginning now. But I don't know if that's overstating it. I don't either. I think it's an interesting uh, theory, and it'll be interesting to see uh, where the sort of heart of the Senate caucus is as they come back. I mean, you're certainly right that Senator Murphy is not someone who's regarded as a wild-eyed leftist, but he is certainly in the progressive flank of the party, and he is very thoughtful about these things. He is a major voice uh, on foreign policy in the Democratic Party. And I think that uh, the the sentiments that he's expressing represent increasingly uh, where Democrats stand on this, uh, especially under pressure from their base, under pressure uh, from so many young activists. Uh, the, the party is increasingly, I think, uh, while still supportive uh, of Israel and uh, increasingly skeptical of the Israeli government and its actions and, and wanting to see uh, the U.S. play a role in trying to uh, create more accountability there. You wrote an article back on October 31st called The Left is Tearing Itself Apart Over Israel. I'm curious if in the week since then, uh, you've seen those rifts starting to affect members of Congress Maybe whether maybe when they go home to their districts, like over Thanksgiving break, it might be too soon to have that reporting done um, or any other ways that aren't just sort of pushing on Biden as obviously a lot of young Democrats who are out on the streets protesting are, but that it's starting to influence individual members depending on the makeup of their districts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something we're all going to be watching for as Congress comes back. But it's something that was already playing out at the time that I wrote that article almost a month ago, and it's only uh, intensified. We've seen, uh, you know, members, uh, Democratic members of Congress at odds with one another. Uh, we saw the scene that unfolded uh, when uh, Palestinian American Democrat Rashida Tlaib from Michigan uh, was censured uh, with the votes of several of her colleagues and uh, was in tears on the floor of the House. Uh, we've seen this happen with this behind closed doors uh, within the White House staff, within uh, the, the congressional offices and all of the, the protests uh, that members have been seeing at home in their districts. They've been getting a lot of phone calls. So it's certainly the case that these rifts have only intensified and deepened and the activism has only increased. And uh, I think the members can't help but uh, be sensitive to that. And so it remains to be seen if that is going to cause more divisions uh, in, in the halls of Congress as well. Are, are you seeing that Democrats or for that matter, Republicans, but your article focused on Democrats, are having political blowback even by trying to sort of show sympathy toward both sides. I was struck by the part of your article that referred to Congresswoman Pramila, uh, Pramila Jayapal of Washington, who chairs the Congressional Progressive Caucus, who voted present on a resolution to condemn Hamas. She didn't vote yes. She only voted present on the resolution to condemn Hamas. And what she said at the time, as you quoted her, while I still condemn Hamas's attacks and the pain and suffering of the Jewish people everywhere, I also condemn the violations of international humanitarian law by Israel and the pain and suffering of Palestinian people everywhere that are not recognized anywhere in this resolution. So could you put that 
in context for us uh, and how members, especially on the Democratic side, are trying to show sympathy in one way or another for both sides and whether that's acceptable to one side or the other. There are, you know, there are, there are one-siders on both sides of this, the pro-Israel side and the pro-Palestinian side. That's right. And I think you've really hit on the, the, the heart of this that, you know, for for many people, it is unacceptable to try to uh, take both sides in this conflict. They see it as a, a sort of all lives matter statement. Uh, and, you know, I think that has changed a little bit as the war has gone on and as we have seen uh, just the tremendous amount of civilian uh, and other casualties in Gaza. I think that has changed the equation for some people and made it uh, more important uh, to recognize the humanitarian conditions on both uh, on both sides. But 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 certainly, especially in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas attacks, I think there was a desire by uh, on the on the part of a lot of Jewish American activist groups and uh, the sort of traditional Israel hawks to say. To, to take Israel's side in the conflict and really uh, express sympathy only uh, for that side. Now that the conflict has gone on, uh, there has been more of a recognition of the humanitarian crisis that is ongoing in Gaza. And, uh, and, and, and this all, I think, goes toward, you know, what and how uh, should America's role be and how should that be articulated? Uh, what is the president doing? Is it enough? What does he need to articulate publicly? I mean, I think what gets lost in all of this at, at, on some level is that this is not an American war fundamentally, that while Israel has been a longtime American ally and, and we supply them with a lot of weapons, uh, we are not combatants in this conflict. And so the questions are about uh, whether and how to condition aid or what the president should be saying and what sort of public expressions of sympathy are being made. Uh, but it's all very, very personal to people. And I think for a lot of uh, young activists, young liberals, certainly Jewish Americans and Arab Americans, uh, there's an intensely personal feeling around this conflict that has led to uh, a lot of very deep divisions. So getting back to Biden, is there a Biden policy behind the scenes that you know of pushing Israel to be more careful, which might mean slower in its military campaign against Hamas once it resumes, presumably it will resume, to give more weight to saving civilian lives? Yes, that that is what we have seen. That is what we have reported that uh, that the president and the administration have been pushing hard on the Netanyahu government, primarily in private. Uh, we know that the president had a phone call uh, with uh, Israeli President Netanyahu yesterday, uh, and what we have been told is that he has been bringing that pressure. Uh, Privately, uh, this is not uh, satisfying to a lot of activists who would like to see the president take more of a public uh, stance, uh, particularly, you know, condemning some of the, the human rights violations uh, the, on the part of the Israeli military. But the administration's uh, explanation has been that by siding with the Israeli government in public, that gives the president room to put pressure on in private. And, you know, I think when you see something like uh, the, the deal that's been playing out and that so far has been pretty successful, uh, the administration uh, would, would like to claim that that is, that is proof that this approach actually can work. Before we turn to some other things, staying on Biden in the Mideast, he talks about a two-state solution. 
Many Israelis and Palestinians alike, though for different reasons, say that's outdated thinking or it's not time for that yet as they each are dealing with this crisis of hostage holding and military action. Any indication getting that Biden is getting ready to release a Biden roadmap for the underlying issues after this immediate period, as some people want him to do? Uh, that's an interesting question. We have not seen that. And in fact, the you know, the longer term trend uh, on the part of uh, this administration has been to uh, try to disengage a little bit from uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, in, in, in in part in recognition of the fact that that you know previous attempts to have America be the broker of some kind of Mideast peace uh, were not successful, and uh, as you say, you know certainly in Israel itself there is a view that that the two state solution is not uh, a future that anyone can see uh, anytime soon. So you know once once the current fighting. Uh, comes to an end, I think that's going to be a big conversation is not only is there any kind of viability for a two-state solution in the near or distant future, but what is America's role in that? And is America still uh, the uh, the trusted broker uh, for both sides? Uh, you know, we saw the Trump administration previously uh, try to uh, change the equ equation by uh, more forthrightly taking Israel's side and trying to marginalize the Palestinians uh, rather than rather than treating them as as sort of equal uh, forces in in a potential negotiation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, does this administration uh, try to get more involved going forward, given what has happened? Uh, do they try to disengage a little bit more, I think. Uh, but to your immediate question, uh, I have not seen any indication that, that this administration is chomping at the bit to, to put out a roadmap for peace, uh, in part because uh, it's just so tricky to do so. Well, where does Biden's reelection campaign figure it into his Mideast policy, if you see any impact at all? We know younger Democrats are more sympathetic to the Palestinians and more skeptical of the Israeli government than older Democrats are. And those Gen Z and millennial voters are sorely needed by Biden next year. And so are the older Democrats. And, you know, we also don't know if the Mideast will really be a voting issue for anyone as compared with domestic issues, which are, of course, always top of mind in presidential elections and, and so pressing, except on rare occasions, they, uh, they really outweigh foreign policy of any kind. Um, but how do you see the Biden campaign taking Biden policy into account, or is he really, really genuinely trying to just look past that? Well, look, I mean, I, I'm sure the president would claim that, that this is not about politics and it's just about, you know, doing the right thing and, and trying to uh, make the world uh, a more peaceful place. But it certainly is something that we have already seen political consequences uh, for Biden, for his approval rating, for his standing uh, specifically on the left and specifically in some of the demographics that he was already having the hardest time with, right? And prior to any of this breaking out in the Middle East, uh, we already saw the now 81-year-old president having trouble uh, arousing the enthusiasm of young voters and of voters of color and of voters on the far left. And those are all of the groups that have most strongly objected uh, to what's been happening in the Middle East. So 
Uh, you know, we've even uh, seen some Democrats worrying that uh, that Biden could lose Michigan, where there's a large Arab American population. We've seen some of the uh, top uh, Arab American uh, supporters and donors uh, to the Democrats say that they will no longer support uh, the president and, and may even campaign against him. Now, what the president and his reelection campaign would say to all this is, as you said, number one, the election's a year away and foreign policy doesn't tend to be a top voting issue. Uh, people tend to be more focused on their pocketbooks and who knows where events will take us over the next uh, 11 months. And also, you know, they say, look, those, those, those demographics you talk about, the young voters, voters of color, and particularly Muslim voters, are not going to vote for Donald Trump, the architect of the so-called Muslim ban. Uh, so they're, I think, uh, on the part of the president's political operation, they are certainly uh, not complacent about this, but they are feeling like this is probably less of a worry than it has been made out to be. Just give me one quick take on one other national politics thing that we may see from Congress this week. Do you think, from what you know, that the House of Representatives will actually vote to expel George Santos this week, uh, starting an immediate scramble for a special election among many Democrats and many Republicans who would try to take that seat? I do. Uh, it's already there's already a motion uh, by the chairman of the Ethics Committee, a Republican congressman from Mississippi. Uh, this was something that you know Congress considered uh, before the Ethics Committee released its report, uh, and that failed in large part because people said, "Well, he needs he needs due process. We need to let the ethics uh, process play out before we we render a verdict on this." But the ethics uh, report came out was quite damning, quite unequivocal. Uh, accused him of committing a lot of crimes. Uh, and he is also under multiple indictments. He had sort of a, a defiant online press conference uh, on Friday, casting aspersions on a lot of his colleagues, which I don't think won him any friends and allies. Uh, now, there does need to be an additional motion made to bring this to the floor, and then it has to be voted on by two-thirds of the Congress. Uh, but it, it looks like, uh, unlike many things in Congress, there is broad agreement that they want to do this, uh, even though it will it will reduce the Republicans' narrow majority. Yeah, and that motion, as I understand it, requires a vote within 48 hours. So if somebody does bring it up today or tomorrow, we will know by the end of this week if... George Santos is expelled from Congress. Molly Ball, senior political correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Great to be with you. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.